You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello again, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. And today we're going to take a journey into the world of customer experience, but we're going to talk to a gentleman who himself has been an entrepreneur. He successfully built and sold a company or two. I don't know. We'll get into that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, his name is Jonathan Schroyer. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Doug. I appreciate the opportunity to, to hang out with you today and to, you know share some things. Hope it'll be great for the listeners. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of potential material here to talk about. First is your area of expertise in customer experience. Uh, and can, can you somehow sum that up right now, what your focus is in that particular space? Yeah, so I've been in customer experience probably for about 25 years. And roughly three or four years ago, I was working in gaming. And I had this idea that customer experience was broken. I wasn't the only person that had the idea. I think there's millions of people across the, the globe at it as well. But I had this framework that I thought could really work well in gaming. So I started a company, Officium Labs, to help gaming companies um, you know, treat their players better and help their players have better experiences. And I've been kind of hanging out in that gaming customer experience, player experience arena for the past few years. Interesting, interesting. Well, what what were some of the issues you were experiencing that you, it made you think it was a little broken? Well, in the kind of early gaming days uh, of mobile, what ended up happening was publishers would create these amazing games, but they would do this thing that's called in the gaming industry called a churn and burn the ships. What, what that means is they would try to monetize the players as much as they could and then kill the game instead of building a meaningful relationship with their players. And so my idea was to work with publishers that wanted to build decade-long relationship with their players. Just similar, like you might have a decade-long relationship with a brand, Doug. I wanted to create that in gaming. And so I had a framework, and I, I thought there would be publishers out there that would want to do that. And so my framework and methodology, you know, I started talking to publishers when I started the company. In two months, we were profitable. We had five clients. We had 30 clients before we sold in 2021. And non-surprisingly, you know, customers want to be treated well. And in the gaming space, publishers wanted to build stronger relationships and not just continue to have to churn out new games every two years. That's a real significant part of most businesses. Any owner that's ever started something, you know you have to have customers to have the business yep. survive, yep. right? And the whole idea of how do you uh, retain those customers, it's always been said that, you know, the cost of acquisition is so high, but the cost yep. of retention is lower so you can improve your margin if you do more to retain customers. That's right. And, and that was the magic sauce. So I invented uh, an algorithm and a methodology that helped gaming companies prove what you just said, which is that you could, you could retain customers cheaper than you can buy new customers and you can build value and relationship with those customers so then not only would you protect the revenue you have with them you'd be able to create new revenue uh, from those customers and, and that was that magic sauce that a lot of those early gaming publishers were super interested in well you 
alluded to building that one company and then uh, uh, selling it off. Uh, what was that journey like for you? I, I think in life, we have all these different types of experiences, right? I think we could probably say, hey, I've got 10 PhDs in this lifetime. Um, you know, selling a company, integrating a company, it's like going to college for a PhD or master's degree. It's a lot of work. And you, you, learn, you learn a ton. And what I learned, I think the three things I learned most about selling the company, integrating into the new company, is that you really have to think about who you're selling to and why are you selling. Um, B, you have to think about what impact does this have on your people? What impact does this have on your clients? And then C, you have to think about what's the long-term trajectory of what success looks like? And is there a value for the two companies to come together that will achieve whatever that measure of success is, whatever that goal is. And I think those are the big three things that I learned through the process. And, and in my second company's case that I sold, the first company I had a startup back in the 2010s that you know was a learning experience or a failure, depending on the terms that you use. Um, but in my second one, I had a lot of, I've taken a lot of that learning and moved it forward. And so I was prepared to go through that process and, and be able to identify and unlock that value for both sides, including the, the customers, the clients, the, pe the people, so forth and so on. You know, it's a challenge to try to find that partner in the transaction that has yeah. some of those same goals and initiatives. I mean, the tech space is famous for companies that gobbled up other companies because they simply wanted to crush the competition. Yeah. You know, they wanted to take them in so they could shut them down. And it's true. It's true. And I think when I decided, so I got three offers to buy my company right around the same time. And when I decided like who to sell to beyond the components that I just mentioned, my co-founder, Scott McCabe and I, we set up a set of core values We have five or six core values. And we were going to refuse to sell to anybody that didn't align with our core values. And so that was really important to us. Regardless of the, you know, the financial win, you know, for the employees, the shareholders and so forth, we wanted to make sure that the core values were set and that there's a trajectory together in the future. And once we got all of those assurances, some in writing, some not, but once we got those in place, then we felt really comfortable that we had made the right decision. But you're right. A lot of companies will just gobble up their competition and shut them down. Uh, and and that's a, it's a strategy. It's not a strategy that I that I support. But it is a strategy that's out there. Well, let me ask you this, given that uh, a lot of this sounds like it was based on some really impressive intellectual property. Uh, how did that go? Typically, where I'm coming from here is typically when I talk to business owners who think they have a long term vision to sell and get that big payday, I remind them that the only way your company is going to become saleable is if you can get out of the business, if, if there's a true engine running there that doesn't need you every day touching something or doing something. It, to, in my mind, that's the first measure of whether the company is even saleable and forget EBITDA and revenues and all that. You yeah. know, it's, can I... If I'm the buyer, can I buy something that doesn't need the founder creator to be there? And so often really good companies are just stuck in that mode because the owner founder hasn't found a way to sort of take himself out of the picture. And yeah. what what was that part in, in your equation? Well, one of our core values was sustainability. 
And sustainability across our small little enterprise meant that no one person was going to make or break the company. Of course, you have the visionary and so forth and so on. But when you sell to a new, new company, they have their own visionary and whatnot, right? And so as we built our company, we wanted to build a sustainable model where the two founders could eventually kind of bow out and others could take that vision forward. And so I think that's the first piece. I think the second piece is we set up a period of time post-sale um, where we knew that, that where the end date would be for the founders, right? And that was something that we agreed upon, you know, in the paperwork, the contracts and so forth. So everybody knew that like, this is when, you know, I'm going to leave. This is when Scott's going to leave. And this is how we're going to build and grow the model. So that's the second thing. And the third thing that we did was we set up mutual goals of success with the buying company and with my organization and my company. So even if we weren't there, there were still goals of success where they would have, be incentivized um, to be able to deliver those goals and deliver that value with or without us. So those are the three things that we did to kind of prevent that kind of component. I think the other thing to think about, not necessarily related to the transaction, is that my co-founder and I, we didn't have, some co-founders have egos about their business or their baby or whatever. And yeah, we kind of just, yeah. we disavowed ourselves of that. Um, you know, it, it took us some time, but we disavowed ourselves of that before the transaction completed so that we can, we could make sure that we, we started in the right mindset as we went to the new companies with the new agreements and so forth. And sometimes that's really hard for some, because it takes a certain type of person with grit and ego and vision and clarity and all the other words that you might want to say of a co-founder that might be just slightly crazy to start a company with nothing. You know, there's, it takes a certain mindset and sometimes it's hard to divorce that mindset during a transaction. Absolutely. And, and, and you're spot on. That's exactly right. It's um it's a double-edged sword. It, it does take that special mindset, psyche and personality to be an entrepreneur, go out mm. and create something from nothing and sometimes the powers in, that are involved in that border on the whole ego thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I won't say it's automatically ego. You know, it's one thing to be driven and focused and energized by your idea. But especially once it gets legs and takes off and starts making some money, there's a delicate tipping point between when that gets to be egocentric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like any founder that might be listening to this, the, the key tip that I would give them early on is remember that your business, the heart of your company is your customers, right? But the lifeblood are your people, not you. Your people are what make your company successful. And if you can keep that humility and keep that focus in front of you at all times, then you'll probably prevent accidental ego. I like that accidental ego. That's a good phrase. I, you may see that in print again. I'll, I'll give you full attribution, but uh, that's that's a good phrase, uh, a very good word. And, and I, I like that thought about you know that your people being that lifeblood, and and it, it's so true. I mean, right here on this show, we've done several episodes about building culture to support a brand, mm -hmm. and it is about leading the people to be focused on that, and less about who and what you as a founder may be. And I'm speaking to the collective you here, guys, not yeah, yeah. John, yeah. John. But um, 
what else in the way of tips and pointers did you glean out of that experience? Well, I think there's a, there's a few more things to think about. First, I, I'm always a big believer that you should do two founders, not one, not three. I think you should have a, a partnership where everybody has kind of equal say on the decision making, because I think that's important. That avoids power struggles, it avoids politics and other things like that. I think the second thing is you should get a, a founder that compliments you. So if, if I'm really good at, let's say I'm really good at sales, but not operations, I should get somebody that's good at operations or maybe somebody that's good at tech or whatever, right? You should, sometimes you get two tech founders and they're both developers and they know nothing about business. And it's great that they know how to build a product, but they don't know how to take the product to market, right? And so I, I think finding, you're not going to get 100% of what you need in two founders to for every part of the company. But I think if you can have complementary um, co-founders, I think that's important. I also think it's important that you start off with those core values that I mentioned, because when you, when you have to make those trade-offs, when you have to make decisions, if you base them on those core values, then you're always, it's easier to align with the co-founder if there's tension or even with the board later on. If there's tension, if you have kind of those core values in place, that'd be kind of the third thing. I think the fourth thing that I would say is, you know, you need to have something that's different, something that's unique, that's not out there. I mean, you could put lipstick on something else and probably make a little bit of money. Um, but if you really have something you're passionate about, something that you believe in that's different, that can it doesn't have to just disrupt or like revolutionize the market, but if it helps a certain segment of the niche, I always say, don't go in thinking you're going to build a billion dollar company, go in and thinking that you're going to build a million dollar company. And then if you do that, a $10 million company. And then if you do that, a hundred million, like some people are like, I'm going to go build a unicorn. Well, that's nice, but that's not realistic. So I think those four or five things would be things that I, I would kind of think about in the beginning. There's a lot of other things to think about, but those four or five things will help build that foundation, right? Um, and so that if you build that foundation, it'll be strong. And, and one in, what is it, one in five startups, or maybe it's four in five startups fail, one in five startups succeed past like series A and series B. So just go in knowing that like, if it doesn't succeed the first time, it's okay. It's a learning experience. Like the math is against you, but take whatever you learn and say, okay, what am I going to do next? And, and keep that courage, keep that grit and keep that focus. I was fortunate to have a second startup that I work on be successful, but it could have been the third one. It could have been the fourth one. It could have been the first one. You just never know. And so you just got to, you got to keep working at it. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. I've told the story on myself that one of my last big entrepreneurial ventures had gone through some of that iterative process. I had been asked as a consultant to help two other companies build something similar to what I ended up building privately. And it was, you know, compounding the learning. But the real truth of the matter was, on one hand, there was a, a force in the market, which was competition. There were four or five other providers of this service that I had landed on. And 
they were credible companies doing good business, doing this work. And I had my own version of how to go do it and built a company around that. And, and then the real truth was, and it, this unfolded many years later. And by the way, we made it through that five-year mark that you were referring to the one out of five startup companies. We were into our fifth year and doing reasonably well. Uh, but then the financial crisis of 08 hit and mm. we, I and my colleagues in the industry were front row seats to that debacle. So all of our companies failed. But in reality, when we all got, we, we literally had a lunch meeting one day, a bunch of us, and we were commiserating about the demise of the segment we were in. And we landed on the idea, the truth was the market didn't really want us, none of us. We, we had found opportunities, but none of our customers were sticking, mm. regardless of what we tried to invoke and help with, because we were, we were doing a type of outsource business that uh, stakeholders didn't really want to outsource. It was a, mm. it was a real integral piece in their yeah. success. And they just didn't want to lose control of that piece. And so they would try us for a while and get good results, but they couldn't live with the discomfort of not really knowing every little thing that was mm. on the table. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's uh, great ideas, but the wrong time, right? Like when my startup, Officium, would have been successful in 2010. Um, because the technology, the infrastructure, and the attitudes of the industry weren't ready. But, it, you know, in 2019, they were, right? And so my first startup, Blue Newt Sports, which nobody really knows that much about, but essentially, it's a, it was a sports simulation company. It was about 15 years ahead of its time. Now there's sports simulation companies all over the place, right? That number being successful. And so sometimes you could have an amazing idea, but it just might not be the right time. Yeah, yeah. So um, always a challenge. Well, I, I want to get back a little bit to the nuts and bolts of the customer experience question, because again, I know a lot of my listeners are themselves dealing with how can I improve? How can I uh, enhance my customer experience? But in your case, wh where did you start just defining the possibilities and how did that become evident to you well so i'd run a number of large customer service and experience operations before officium i worked at microsoft i worked at semantic startups postmates and so forth so i had an idea of what it took to run a great operation but what i found was that there wasn't a ip out there that would help these the new frontline leaders, the new directors, the new VPs. So, because every company I go to, right, customer experience is broken. You fix it, then you're like, okay, I did it because I'm a builder and a scaler. And then when it's and it's smooth, I'm like, okay, I'm going to hand this off to somebody that can keep it going. I'm going to go and build and transform. Right? That's the nature of who I am. And so what I found is like, hey, why don't instead of just like going to another company and doing this, why don't they like build the framework and the IP out that I can like do this for all the companies so that we can like lift all boats as it were. And so I started off with uh, what's called the service stack maturity model. And essentially I looked at, hey, what if there's like eight or nine different pillars inside the customer experience, customer service world, like workforce management, training, operations, technology, interactions, a variety of different ones, right? Um, and so I was like, how, do, how, 
if we think about it from a product point of view, let's, let's build this framework as if I'm building a product. And if you build a product, what you do is you say, hey, this is version one features. This is version two. This is version three, version four. So what I said is this is basic. Basic means something different today when I, than when I started, but this is basic. This is standard, you know, this is preferred and this is best in class, right? And so then, so then I said, hey, let me come and let me assess your, your, your customer experience team, right? And let me tell you where you're at in the feature, the service type maturity feature. What features do you have in this pillar versus this pillar, so forth and so on. And then let me work with you to hold a workshop with your team to help think through what are the next features that you want to invest in to get up to that next level, eventually with the long-term goal of getting to, you know, preferred or best in class. And then what the kind of the carrot was like, once you're preferred or best in class, I can guarantee you that you're going to protect revenue or you're going to create revenue by being best in class. And, and, I'll, and I'll license out, you know, the algorithm and the math that we use to do that, right? And, and so that was what we built that was, was different. It wasn't just like, hey, this is where, you, where you're, for lack of a better term, where you're not very good. Consultants do that all the time. It was, this is where you're not great, but it's not really about that. This, this is where you sit against your peers, against a benchmark. Let me help you get to where you want to go. And then we had a team called Operations as a Service. And then I have a team here to help you transition and transform to get there. And when you need us anymore, we peel off and your internal team keeps going and running with it, right? And then by the way, you can prove to the power cores in your company, the decision makers, that customer service, customer experience is profitable. It's a profit center. So then you get a seat at the table in the future when they're building and developing products and so forth. And that was different than what the industry was seeing. Yeah, yeah. So what is the current state of affairs and the current thinking in this realm? Is, is there a 2.0 that's on the horizon? Well, I mean, I, what we've done is we've really doubled down and, and we've, we've actually done like three iterations of the service stack maturity model. We just call it the maturity model now, um, but we've done three or four iterations and each year we have a, a, re, a new release uh, because, I mean, every, every year we get new technology, new innovation, some features that no longer be, are relevant based off of people, process and technology and so forth. And so we, we do a review of it every year. And so I think we're on version 4.0 or, or so right now of the maturity model. But what we ended up finding when we first started off with the Fisium was they're like, well, you guys have really done a great job in this space. Could you do frontline services for us? Which wasn't something we start, started to do. And we're like, yeah, we could do that. And so now we've built out you know, a, a 10 location frontline services team that helps customers with that actual interaction, that one-to-one -one interaction, that engagement with their end user customers, not only for kind of customer service support, we do community content moderation. In the gaming space, we do game testing and localization, which is a key part of when you take a game globally and when you build games. And so we kind of expounded on those services based off of not what we wanted to take to market, but what customers said they need and they wanted our help on. And so that's how we've kind of, we've grown those relationships. So very similar to how gaming companies are like, hey, we want to build 10-year relationships with, with our, our players. And we're like, hey, we want to build 10-year relationships with our clients so we can help them be successful. In some cases, that means that we, we don't do what we used to do for them because they don't need that anymore. In some cases, we tell them, hey, don't do that. Don't pay us a million dollars to do that because you should automate it or you should do this. So you have to have that meaningful 
kind of deep relationship with your clients to make smart decisions. And that's what's going to help your business be successful long term. So that's that's the direction that we've taken. But facing morning, I'll call Arise Gaming and Arise Consulting. So I run the two verticals in Arise for that. Yeah. You know, you touched on and and kind of blew through it quickly and no harm, no foul. I mean, you were telling your story, but I want to come back to it. And that that is the idea the the notion that you had this core idea when you started officium you you had this stack model that you were focused on and then customers started coming to ask you if you could do x if you could add on and do even the the support center type work and and so on and so on and that my point is that's a common plight of a lot of businesses that i know they they come out of the gate with a core idea that quickly proves to be viable, uh, needed in the market of, of good value. But customers get in, they touch and feel it, experience it, and then they say, well, this has a this has a twin sister that I need and another piece of this that's a, no, a normal yeah. offshoot. And it's a slippery slope for the entrepreneur to say, okay, yeah, we can do that because you might be creating a whole new business line that takes you yeah. off of your core value. So uh, talk a little bit more about that, the, the decisioning to yeah. agree to branch out and grow that way. Yeah, I mean, I think a distraction for an entrepreneur is, is your worst enemy, right? Which is what you're talking about. Don't get distracted from your core. I think there's a couple things at play for us that, you know, it, where it worked, where it may not be the best, you know, for every entrepreneur. You know, when I went in thinking about the business with my co-founder, we talked about sustainability. And one of the concerns that we had was, what if the market shifts? What if the market changes? And, you know, we need to pivot. Like, we don't want to have one horse in the race, as it were. Uh, around that and and so we believed in kind of a, a trifecta approach one was kind of the consultative one was kind of the frontline services and the third was technology now we were never going to build the technology but we knew that we needed technology in the stack so setting up partnerships and so forth and so we felt like if we could really focus on those three regardless of whatever the economic macro trends were that we could pivot to one of those three and be successful. And so that was kind of an intentional strategy, even though we started off in consulting because it was the highest margin business and the easiest way to become profitable first. Um, and so when the pandemic hit, a lot of people were like, well, I don't know if I, I need as much consulting, but I need frontline. Or, well, you have these technology partnerships. Can you help us with automation? And so for us, it worked really well because we were able to pivot really fast and make changes, but not kill our business, our, our business that we pivoted away from, but it just wasn't our number one business anymore. And so our viewpoint was we'd never go above three lines. If we went above three lines, we felt like it would have been too much. But we started off as a services business that kind of evolved into a services technology business. I think it's a little bit different when you start off as a technology business and people ask you to do services. If you're not good at services, if you don't need, you know, know services, it'll take you 10 times as much work to deliver that second line of business just, in, just rather than just staying to your core business. So I do think you have to be careful based off of your skill set and your capability and make you know, pragmatic decisions around that. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And I, I like the idea of 
in your visioning that you could identify the three possibilities and and it sounds to me like the classic three-legged stool they all interrelate well they they're, yeah. they're not independently different um that that would prohibit a kind of a synergy you know a coming together of value yeah. And, and from a market standpoint, it represented a, a logical value proposition. Oh, we do this. Oh, and some of this and some of that. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I, I can see that flow. So interesting experience. So I don't know if I'm going to step on any toes or ask you something you can't answer, but so how's the new deal going? I think it's great. I mean, I think that the the three or four things that we really wanted to get out of the arise relationship to help us grow and to hit those trajectory goals and have the impact has been there i think anytime you go through an integration you're going to have those ups and the downs right uh, nelson mandela had a great you know phrase that we kind of embodied at Ephesium and we brought through to arise which is i never lose i only win or learn and it changes the mindset of when, when you get hit with tension or, or failure or hardship, right? It changes your mindset, you know? It, it's not really like somebody comes out of left field with some crazy thing and hits, you know, hits me with it. I'm not gonna fall down and be like, oh, well, what, 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 what is behind that? What can I learn from that? And how can I make that a winning experience, right? And I think because we based our acquisition off of our core values, partnering with, the other side in the early days, and now we're all one team, right? But partnering with the other side in the early days, we had reasonable people on both sides working towards a common goal. Uh, and so we were able to work through any of those potential challenges. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's never easy. Integrations are, I think it's, they say 80% of integrations fail. Um, I could see why, because in, in, if you don't have people on both sides, like with a common goal, if somebody has an ulterior motive or like a different mission, then of course your integration, it's gonna fail, right? Uh, and so I think it's really important, like when you think about why you're selling, who you're selling, and what are the operational principles and your values, make sure that it's on both sides, it's gonna make it easier to be successful. One of the things I did learn is like, we sold during the pandemic and we did something that's rather unique, Doug. We sold with ever, without ever meeting anybody face-to-face -face because of the pandemic. And so what I would say is that's one learning, like if we could have met somebody face-to-face, -face, if we could have broke bread as it were, gone to dinner, you know, having, having that relationship, that would have been better for any company, not just for us. I think the second thing that we learned is that it was more important to focus on selling and growing the business early on rather than integrating. So, you know, sometimes companies like, well, let's integrate now. I'm like, well, actually let's make sure we protect the client base. Let's grow the base. Let's build the product. That's something that, you know, that I, as a founder, you know, I focused a little bit too much on integration and I should have focused more on growing the business and value. So that was a great learning for me. And then I think the third thing is really focus on your team. Like we, we have this uh, Office 5 is a product that we use, but it really helps us to see week to week what the sentiment of our team is. And perception becomes reality. I had an old boss that used to say, Mark Wooden at Microsoft, I love him. He used to say, hey, you're always on stage. You never know when the curtains open. And, and that's so true when it comes to like working in a remote team, completely decentralized with folks that are on this journey of, you know, they came with you as a startup. Now they're getting acquired. 
And so I had a lot of learning uh, as a leader to really focus on my team and understand their viewpoints and their thoughts and how bring them along, um, you know, on the on the ride, as it were. Not much for, but put my arms around them and say, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Okay, let's go together, right? Those are some key learnings for me that nobody did anything intentionally wrong, but sometimes you just get so busy, you get distracted, right? And so it's really important to be really focused. Yeah. I think that's a great point, you know, keeping your team on board when you're going through an acquisition like that, especially if you're the acquired party, your team can't help but have doubts. And I I coach and teach something I call a team trust model, and it, mm. it's, it's about helping elevate that spirit of trust. and nothing can disrupt trust in a in a work team more than being acquired by somebody else because there's all these great unknowns that get introduced that's right that's right that's and right the the things you used to know like and trust aren't there anymore and and there's there's new players new faces coming in so as leaders of the acquired entity you've you're right you've got to do that work with your team to assure them share information as best you can as much as you can and for those delicate things you can't yet share then just let them know that you're working the answer and you'll get yep. to them yep. as soon as you can 100 percent. yep yep well jonathan this has been great man i really appreciate you coming in and sharing this uh, journey you've had tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I'm at Chief CX Officer on LinkedIn. I'm also, if if you prefer, Twitter, Insta, TikTok. I'm also on all those platforms and YouTube as well. So, but if you want to reach out to me, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best. Um, follow me if you're interested in my content. But definitely love to connect and talk with people that either have questions, have passions, want to just want to talk in general. I, I love to mentor and help folks be successful in whatever journey they're on. Great, great. Well, folks, as always, we'll have those links and that information in the show notes here. So feel free to hop over there. And I also like to remind you that if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a YouTube uh, video version of this on YouTube channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there. And uh, for now, we're going to sign off. Jonathan, one last time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doug. Have a great day. All right. Well, folks, you too. Thanks for stopping in, being with us. I wish you the best and hope to see you again real soon. Take care. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.